This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 107, continuing the history of the six-day races, running as far as you can in six days, never on Sundays. Well, almost never. This episode will tell the story of the second Astley Belt race. It was competed in New York City, but was a disappointment. Find out why. Also, the story of another ultra-running fraud. In 1878, Daniel O'Leary of Chicago was the undisputed world champion of ultra-running or pedestrianism. He cemented that title with his victory in the first International Astley Belt six-day race in London, defeating 17 others, running and walking 520.2 miles. The Astley Belt quickly became the most sought-after trophy in ultra-running. O'Leary was now the most famous runner in America and in Great Britain, pushing aside the fleeting memory of Edward Payson Weston. As with any championship, wannabe contenders came out of the woodwork. They coveted the shiny, heavy, gold and silver Astley belt and wanted to see their own names engraved upon it. But more than anything, they wanted the riches and the fame from adoring fans of the new endurance sport, which was about to experience an explosion of popularity in both England and America. O'Leary was required to accept any challenge within three months and defend the belt within 18 months, but he had no intention to stay in England with his family to race against unqualified English challengers. O'Leary infuriated many in England when he made it clear that he was returning to America and that any challenge to the Astley belt would need to be competed against him there. He said, Having won the belt, I had to say where the walking should be done. I wouldn't walk in London again. They don't know where America is, and of course wouldn't go there. This didn't please Sir John Astley, who feared that the belt would never come back to England. He stated that if it didn't come back, he would create an identical belt for the British to compete for, with clear rules that the competitions had to take place in England. In May 1878, after a visit to his ancestral home in Cork, Ireland, O'Leary returned to America with the Astley belt and a reported nearly $4,000 of winnings, valued today at $107,000. After O'Leary's return, John Hughes from New York City issued a challenge to O'Leary for the belt. Hughes had been a thorn in O'Leary's side for years. As early as 1875, Hughes was issuing challenges, which O'Leary rejected. Hughes had wanted to compete in the first Astley Belt race, but couldn't raise the entrance fee and cover the trip costs to England. John Hughes, age 38, was a poor day laborer with no formal education from New York City. He was born in Ireland and was the son of a competitive runner. When he was a boy, he was a fast runner and won some races, and as a youth became a champion wrestler and soccer player. He immigrated to America in 1868, became a citizen, and worked for the city of New York in Central Park. Hughes began his running career in 1870 and embraced the nickname of Leper because of his odd jumping gait. He successfully ran in many races up to 10 miles over the years, and then started to do long journey walks. 
As Weston and O'Leary started to pile up winning money, he wanted in on the action but couldn't find a financial backer. After hearing of O'Leary's Astley Belt victory, Hughes wanted to try to beat the 520-mile world record. He made his attempt in April 1878 on a track of 15 laps to the mile in the Central Park Garden building. During the first day, he had, quote, lost his head after being stirred by the applause and ran for the first 30 miles in 3 hours 44 minutes. It then went downhill from there for the rookie ultra runner after that. As expected, he didn't come close to the record, but reached a respectable 408.9 miles, drinking an enormous quality of liquor and wine along the way. Clearly, Hughes was underqualified to compete for the belt. It was said, He does not profess to be a great walker, but he claims that he can outrun any man in the world. All professional pedestrians are bitterly opposed to him. They say he is a fraud and brags too much to amount to anything. O'Leary continued to ignore Hughes' challenges, and challenges from British runners. Go away! One complained, O'Leary has not accepted a single challenge since he became holder of the championship belt. All those who have challenged him, he appears to think beneath his notice. O'Leary was blunt and said that he had no desire of shirking his responsibility to defend his championship, but objected to, quote, fourth-rate pedestrians. In July 1878, Sir John Astley in England ruled that O'Leary must accept Hughes's challenge or forfeit the Astley belt and champion of the world title. O'Leary decided to accept the challenge. Surely O'Leary knew Hughes would not be serious competition, but a defense of the belt was needed according to the rules. After several weeks of somewhat stormy discussions between O'Leary and Hughes' agents, articles of agreement were signed to race for the second Astley belt to be held in New York City at Gilmore's Garden with $1,000 going to the winner. Gilmore's Garden was a historic ultra-running venue that was originally constructed for P.T. Barnum's Hippodrome in New York City, where the first six-day race in history was held in 1875. Multimillionaire William Henry Vanderbilt owned the valuable property, which used to be used for a massive train depot. William Henry immediately capitalized on New York's location as a transport hub and expanded railway lines throughout the Northeast. William Henry doubled the family fortune. He was an excellent businessman and branches of the Vanderbilt family, not directly Henry, but there's a few branches of the family, owned nearly every railroad in the United States at one time or another. With this vast transport empire, the Vanderbilts had a historic fortune and weren't shy about spending it. After the circus vacated the property in 1875, band leader Patrick Gilmore leased the property for concerts, flower shows, beauty contests, dog shows, and boxing matches, and renamed it to Gilmore's Concert Garden. In 1876, a band leader, Patrick Gilmore, took over the lease. The renamed facility, Gilmore's Concert Garden, in 1877 hosted, among other events, the first Westminster Kennel Club dog show then titled the first annual New York Bench Show. Gilmore saw sports events as a potential moneymaker for the building. Gilmore's Garden became one of the most popular venues in the city, 
and later, in May 1879, it would be renamed to Madison Square Garden. The second Astley Belt race started on September 30, 1878. It was a far cry from the celebrated, highly competitive first Astley Belt race. This time it was like a heavyweight boxer taking on a lightweight. Its place in ultra running history is truly minor, and it was only held because of the belt challenging rules. Two separate 2.5 feet wide tracks were laid down, the outer 8 laps to a mile and the inner 9 laps to a mile. O'Leary won a coin flip and chose the outer track. The surface was made of soft dirt about 3 inches deep rolled on top of asphalt. The garden arena included evergreens and flower plants giving it a beautiful appearance. A grandstand used for concerts was left in place with chairs, seats, and benches on infield grass. At the start at 12.55 a.m., O'Leary was given loud cheers and Hughes a few hurrahs. Hurrah! Hurrah! Go Hughes! Hughes quickly repeated the same mistake he made during his solo six-day trial. He ran the first mile in six minutes, 50 seconds, nearly four minutes faster than O'Leary. He also wore, quote, shoes large enough for a tamed elephant. O'Leary resisted the temptation to run and walked at a steady pace. After 12 hours, Hughes had a nine-mile lead, but was paying for his fast start, suffering from a sick stomach, though thought to be caused by drinking too much milk. Glug, 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 glug. After nearly 19 hours, Hughes reached 85 miles and retired to his tent. He was completely used up and staggered like a drunken man. The contest was now like a race between a duke's horse and a streetcar horse. O'Leary reached 100 miles in 21 hours, 39 minutes, and 103 miles for the first day. He continued to increase the lead each day, and Hughes hung in there to the end. Clearly, O'Leary didn't push for a first-class effort. Thousands came to watch the final day, but the final score was disappointing for an Astley Belt race. O'Leary, 403 miles, to Hughes with 310 miles. O'Leary said afterwards, Had I had a better competitor, I could have made more miles, but from the start, I was convinced it was a walkover. A day later, O'Leary said that Hughes was a humbug and criticized Sir John Astley for forcing him to compete against him. Humbug. 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 Yes, the second Astley Belt race for the Championship of the World was a mess and an embarrassment. In England, the championship was called a fraud in the sport. But the event was a financial windfall for O'Leary and his friends. For his effort, he won an engraved medal valued at $5,000 or $143,000 today. Hughes was awarded about $2,000. A few days later, Hughes pressed charges to have his three backers arrest. He believed that they had poisoned his milk and attempted to swindle him out of his prize money. He was illiterate and had been tricked into making his mark on a power of attorney document giving his backers the authority to get his money. Challenges were immediately issued to O'Leary for the Astley Belt by other Americans. 
O'Leary, learning from his mistake of wasting effort walking against inferiors, replied, I will melt the belt before I will compete against any man that has not a record of 500 miles in six days. Sir John Astley wasn't happy that his belt was still in America and that he could not use it for yet another prominent six-day race in England. He had lost total control of the race series that he had founded. He announced that he would hold a race in late October 1878 for a second Astley Challenge belt for the Long Distance Championship of England. O'Leary was still the recognized world champion and felt no compelling reason to compete in the British race. He said he already had a belt and did not need two. He still insisted that the next international Astley belt race be held in America at some future date. The rules stated that he did not need to defend it again that year, so he first intended to take a well-deserved break and enjoy his fortune. The Championship of England race was held in the Agricultural Hall in London. Rules and conditions for the race were nearly identical to the first Astley belt race. All races for this new challenge belt had to be held in London, which countered the problem that O'Leary was causing by insisting his challenges take place in America. Interest in the new race was very strong, with 24 entries in just a month. Without O'Leary in the race lineup, Edward Payson Weston entered the event. Weston had been in England for nearly three years. Because of his very lavish lifestyle, living in posh hotels, he had squandered away all his winnings of hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's value and declared bankruptcy in British courts. The English race started at 1.05 a.m. on October 28, 1878 with 23 starters. Blower Brown quickly went into the lead, clocking the first mile in a speedy 7 minutes 43 seconds, and reached 50 miles first in 8 hours and 1 minute. Most contestants ran, and surprisingly, even Weston ran at times. The race was highly competitive that first evening in front of 8,000 spectators. Eight of the starters reached 100 miles on day one, a significant improvement for British ultra runners. After 48 hours, the top three were Corky with 204 miles, Blower Brown and Peter Crossland with 200 miles. By the end of the fifth day, it was a two-man race between Corky with 507 miles and Brown with 450. Weston was far behind in fifth with 365 miles and quit the race with a day to go. On the last day, the spectator attendance was enormous, estimated at 15,000 people. Corky pushed ahead strongly and was ahead of O'Leary's world record pace. He reached 500 miles in a world record time of 132 hours 50 minutes. At a little after 7 p.m., Corky reached the world record of 520 miles in two laps in a time of about an hour faster than O'Leary's record time. After a short rest, he again appeared on the track. The band played See the Conquering Hero, and the race ended very early at 8.20 p.m. by mutual consent of the remaining runners after Corky reached a new world record of 521 miles. He could have gone much further in the time allowed. The final score was Corky, 521, 
Brown 506, and Rowell 470. In all, at least 14 six-day races were held during 1878 in both Great Britain and America. To close off the year, O'Leary raced Peter Campana for six days at Gilmore's Garden in New York City. The story of Campana is another lesson to be weary of the over-anxious ultra-runners seeking fame and fortune. Peter Campana, age 42, was a fireman from Bridgeport, Connecticut, also the home of P.T. Barnum. His family came from France. As a youth, he was very involved in athletics and received the nickname of Young Sport. But Campana was actually one of a long line of ultra-running frauds. He could have been called the Fool on the Hill. While living in New York, he became a volunteer fireman and later, when he moved to Connecticut, was a peddler of nuts and fruit. Running fast was a passion and an extraordinary talent. By 1860, he had competed in races up to 10 miles and was winning. Campana wanted to become a professional pedestrian. On November 11, 1878, he was determined to try to beat O'Leary's six-day world record of 520 miles in a solo attempt. He made his solo attempt at Bridgeport, Connecticut on a cramped, slippery track, 14 laps to a mile. He started impressively, reaching 100 miles in 17 hours 53 minutes. Campana reached the world record of 521 miles with more than 10 hours to spare. Or did he? There was one huge problem. During the effort, the track was re-measured and found to be 15.6 laps to a mile instead of 14. Campana was actually at about 466 miles. He tried to make up the missing miles and indeed claimed to reach 521 and a quarter mile for a confusing new six-day record with some created math and likely poor lap counting. It was joked that he covered 584 Bridgeport miles. The performance was deemed, quote, not sufficiently authenticated to entitle him to a record. A couple months later, the truth of this farce would come out, and I'll cover that later. Campana was confident that he had broken the record and was willing to prove his abilities against the best. He became an instant celebrity in Bridgeport and quickly found a new wife to marry. Campana's six-day accomplishment, whether true or not, received a lot of publicity and was noticed by O'Leary. He wasn't happy learning that his six-day world record had been surpassed by an unknown amateur. Within a week of Campana's accomplishment, O'Leary sought out a head-to-head -head match with Campana to prove that he could beat him, but it wasn't for the Astley belt. Campana accepted the challenge. The two met for the first time in mid-December 1878 to sign the Articles of Agreement, and O'Leary said, I like the looks of the man, and he may surprise us all. The race began on December 23, 1878, at Gilmore's Garden in New York City, held with the same go-as-you-please rules established by Astley. Two separate tracks were used, nine laps to a mile and eight laps to a mile. The race began at 1 a.m., 
A stillness reigned in the vast building, which was only broken at intervals by the voice of the timekeeper, as he recorded in a loud voice the number of laps, the miles, and the time of each competitor. Both occasionally broke out into a run. Of Campana it was written, He is about five feet eight inches high, very muscular, and broad across the shoulders with a small waist. He has a very slouching gait without any of the style or grace of a lurry. His most natural gait is a little dog trot, about five or six miles an hour, and this is his favorite method of getting along. After ten hours, Campana had built up an eight-mile lead due to O'Leary taking a two-hour break early on. After the first day, Campana held a surprising lead, 90 miles to 83 for O'Leary. The race continued during the week and even entertained Christmas Day spectators. A New York Times reporter couldn't understand the fascination. Thousands found a mysterious fascination in the place that compelled them to linger hour after hour, gazing at the contestants and yelling themselves hoarse over the mediocre exhibition to which they were treated. The clouds of dust and tobacco smoke that were so dense that from one end of the building the other was invisible, making an atmosphere that was terrible to breathe and proved very distressing to the pedestrians. New York had hoped to witness an impressive high-mileage walking match after the disappointing second Astley Belt match between O'Leary and Hughes. But again, they were greatly disappointed, and it was referred to as a farce. By day five, Campana wasn't doing well with a terribly swollen knee. The poor fellow presented a pitiful sight as he shuffled around the track, staggering as he walked, having a man at either side apparently ready to catch him if he should fall. At times the crowd taunted him, provoking him to strike a spectator. Some in the crowd shouted that the event should be stopped. O'Leary suffered from the foul, dusty, and smoky air in the building. After five days, O'Leary extended his lead to 24 miles. Campana was a mess on the last day. Livid rings were under the eyes and great seams that seemed conduits of woe and weariness ran downward past the corners of his mouth. His left foot was turned outward at precise right angles with the right one, and every time he swung it forward, he used his hand for assistance. Shouts of old stag and old sport instead of young sport were yelled at him so often that they seemed like guns at a funeral. O'Leary's suffering from terrible blisters on his feet didn't dare take off his shoes for fear he wouldn't be able to put them back on. He was greeted by cheer after cheer. Both were accused of using excessive liquor that last day as a stimulant. In the end, O'Leary reached only 400 miles to Campana's 357 miles. O'Leary declared a day later, It was the poorest six-day walk that I have ever made. I do not think that I shall walk much more. I shall retire after the next match for the Usley Belt. When asked about Campana, he commented, I have great respect for him. He must have suffered intensely. O'Leary was rumored to have received $12,000 from the race, valued at $330,000 today. Campana was on his feet the next day, recovering well, and hoped to compete in the next Astley Belt race. 
A week later, William Caulfield revealed that Campana's world record in November at Bridgeport, Connecticut had been cheated. Caulfield was a timer in the event and admitted that he had credited Campana an extra 20 miles every morning and ran 10 miles for him each night while Campana was sleeping. A second witness signed an affidavit that 10 extra miles were given to Campana on the last day to help him reach the 521 and a quarter miles before time ran out. Campana would have had to know about this huge discrepancy. He never denied the charge, continued the fraud, and started to call himself, quote, champion, long-distance runner, and walker of the world. The press was not kind to Campana. Campana proved an utter failure as a long-distance walker, and was, of course, like all of his kind, ready with excuses for not having done what he had promised. The truth is that he is an old, played-out man whose days for tremendous exertions have long since passed. Another article summed up the two disappointing six-day races held at Gilmore's Garden that year. When someone has made a great hit in a particular line of public entertainment, crowds of frauds and pretenders are sure to foist themselves on the public in hopes of raking in heaps of shekels. Pedestrianism is no exception to this rule. Hughes and Campana, frauds, 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 forced themselves before a long-suffering public. Campana received about $2,000, $57,000 in today's value, from the race against O'Leary. Within a couple weeks, he bought a house and furnished it luxuriously. Within days of moving in, his new wife pressed charges against Campana for beating and choking her. He was arrested and the two separated. There was more to Campana than people realized. Beware of the fraudulent ultra-runner. Stay tuned for the truly amazing third Astley Belt race. If you like this podcast and want to help it to continue, go to ultrarunninghistory.com slash member to become my partner and contribute a little each month. That's ultrarunninghistory.com slash member to become a Patreon member and help out. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.